0: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come.
2: you know what's scary? A nuclear crisis. Uh, Do you know what's scarier? Two nuclear crises. This week, we had major news relating to not one, but two conflicts between nuclear armed powers, the U.S. and North Korea, and India and Pakistan. And in both cases, that's not good news. Welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Good morning. So I have a scratchy voice, as you may hear. I have a little bit of a cold. Jen and Alex have been up all night watching North Korea-related stuff, but we're here with you because this is a really, really big deal week in world politics. It's really important, and we want to dive in, starting with the U.S. and North Korea, where a summit between Kim Jong-un and Trump ended with a twist that surprised a lot of observers. They didn't come to a deal, right? (laughs) That's actually really shocking, But to understand why that's a big deal, no pun intended, uh, we need to go a little back in time. So, Alex, why don't you give us the context?
3: Yeah. So, I feel like we've talked enough about North Korea on this show that I'm going to shorthand a few things right here. So, first, Washington and Pyongyang were basically at each other's throats, threatening war in 2017. Little Rocket Man. Little Rocket Man. Fire Fire and and Fury. 2018 comes around. There's a big, great reversal. They're kind of becoming friends again. North Korea and South Korea are getting together. The U.S. and North Korea are kind of interested in diplomacy. Then there's a summit in June 2018 where Trump and Kim meet in Singapore. Not much came out of that except a plan to basically say we will continue to hold talks and hope that things become better between us. That led to then this week's second summit, which took place in Hanoi, Vietnam. And the goal here that everyone was expecting was that this would be a more concrete event where they would come to some sort of deal that would not only improve the relationship, but actually show progress towards curbing North Korea's nuclear program. And so this was widely expected that this would be the moment where Trump shows that his diplomacy, his effort with North Korea was actually going to bear some fruit.
2: So this is why the two of you were up all night, right? Because you drew the short straws and you got to watch on Hanoi time what Absolutely, was going on.
1: which is a full 12 hours ahead of D.C. Okay, so, so, so what was it like? The possible time.
2: What happened in real time?
1: So it started off pretty well. Trump and Kim began their meeting on Tuesday with a short one-on-one greeting. And they had this kind of social dinner where they chatted. Trump came out, you know, reiterated that he expected something equal or greater than Singapore to happen. He had this line about how he wants North Korea to become this, like, economic powerhouse. So things were looking pretty good, and and we expected pretty big announcement. And then things started to change. Overnight, last night, both Trump and Kim's statements started to get a little cagey and it kind of seemed like, uh-oh, things are starting to slow down here. Trump start saying, hey, look, there's no rush. We got plenty of time and things. Their body language started to change. Alex and I were like, is it me? Or does it look like they're way more closed off? They're not like making eye contact. We're like, oh, maybe it's jet lag or maybe things are not going well. What if this is all going downhill? And what if there might not be a deal at all?
2: They have a press conference and Trump comes out and he says...
3: At this time, we decided not to do any of the options. And we'll see where that goes. But
2: it was... Uh it was a very interesting two days. And I think, actually, it was a very productive two days. But sometimes you have to walk. To be clear, when he says walk, he means that both leaders, they, they left, and there's no deal, no agreement.
3: And actually, Trump tells us why. Basically, uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety. And we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work and we'll see, but we had to uh, walk away from that particular suggestion. We had to walk away from that.
1: So w- what does that mean?
3: Sure. So there there was an outline for this deal.
1: And you know what's interesting about that is Alex Ward right here got the exclusive on that. So com. check it out.
3: It does exist on the web. It was tentative, so obviously they could have changed, but here's what we kind of know they were talking about. I'll quickly list the four that they were talking about, and we'll go into detail in a second. So first, they considered signing a peace declaration. Second, the returns of the remains of U.S. troops who died in the Korean War. Three, setting up liaison offices in each other's countries. And then four, what Trump was referring to in that, in that comment, sanctions relief in exchange for the closure or at least— a stop of production at a major nuclear facility.
1: To start off, the peace declaration. The Korean War technically never ended, even though hostilities ended decades ago. So this peace declaration would be basically symbolic, saying the U.S. and North Korea are no longer officially engaged in hostilities, right? Like, we symbolically make peace officially on paper. It's this big gesture that doesn't really cost either side that much to do, but is a really good sign of, like, goodwill. Second, the... Return of the remains of U.S. troops who died on the Korean Peninsula during the Korean War. We had some of this happen after Singapore, after the first summit, uh, setting up liaison offices. This is a fancy way of saying unofficial embassies, basically. They're like kind of quasi-offices that say, look, we're not officially— friends and super good buddies. We don't officially have full diplomatic ties. But look, we're going to set up offices in each other's country. That way we can talk and it's a little bit more like we're buddies,
2: sort of. Now, that all seemed to be fine. The key sticking point, the thing that collapsed and sundered the entire talks was the issue surrounding the Yongbyon facility, which is North Korea's publicly known facility for producing fissile material, the things you need to make a bomb. Now, North Korea probably has other ones we don't know about, at least one, but that's the one that is sort of publicly their place for making nuclear material. Trump wanted it closed. According to Trump, Kim wanted the U.S. to lift all sanctions on North Korea in exchange for the shuttering of Yongbyon. That would be a terrible deal from the U.S. point of view because North Korea probably has other ways to make a bomb. Right. And so this would be like a partial, not really dismantling of their nuclear program in exchange for the removal of all sanctions. Really, really unfair for the U.S. And so Trump walked away.
1: There's also the issue of would there be any kind of verification baked into that? Right. Like, or is it Kim Pinky swears? I promise wink, wink, that I'm going to shut this facility down. Okay, great, but how do we check to make sure he actually did that? Like, are you going to allow inspectors in? So there's, like, a lot of not good stuff for, like, the U.S. perspective, especially in return for lifting all sanctions, according to Trump. So not a great deal.
2: It would have been considerably weaker than the Iran nuclear deal. Considerably weaker. Not even close. Yeah, which Trump rails against, of course.
1: So Trump always said that art of the deal, right? He should walk out of the room if the deal is bad and— He did, true to his word.
2: But but now the key question is, what does it mean that these talks have failed?
3: So I would argue it's
1: probably the second
3: worst option. Um, The worst option is what you described, that they sign a horrible, horrible deal. That'd be worse than the Iran one. In this case— The The Iran nuclear deal is good, to be clear. Yes. In this case, there is a chance that the appetite for diplomacy could go away, right? Trump has enjoyed symmetry. He's enjoyed possibly having the historic— responsibility of bringing an end to North Korea's nuclear program, however unlikely that may be. And now that it's kind of blown up in his face, now that, you know, he traveled nearly 10,000 miles and <laughs> to make this deal, now that he's coming home empty-handed, it's possible that down the line, he just kind of goes, well, maybe I don't want to meet with Kim. Maybe I don't want to really continue these talks. And that may slightly shutter the diplomatic opening, which could conceivably slightly open that war footing we were on in 2017.
1: Right. right. And Alex, you had a really great point. I um, mean, you know, in some of the pieces you've written so many, I can't remember which one, but feel free Neither can I. It's fine. to read all of them. They're great. You made this point that there are hardliners inside the Trump administration, in particular John Bolton, National Security Advisor, who really don't like the diplomacy option and have been pushing back against it. And they really— pushing more for we need to take the hard approach. We need to take like the more, you know, aggressive approach. And there have been others kind of on the other side really advocating for diplomacy. So the risk here is that now that it's kind of shown that diplomacy didn't really work and we haven't gotten anywhere at all, nothing substantive to show for all of these, you know, two summits and all of this back and forth, shuttle diplomacy, there's a chance that Bolton and, and the people on his side may be able to convince Trump, like, look, we told you, diplomacy is pointless with these people. We've tried this before. Bolton has been involved before negotiations with North Korea that ended up going nowhere. So that that's kind of where this risk is on the U.S. side, that, like, they could convince Trump, look, we told you.
3: Not to be a conspiracy theorist, but things were, as we mentioned, were kind of going well. And then Bolton joins his first meeting, and that's where the deal seemed to break. Obviously, we don't really know what happened in the room. Trump is saying it's the North Greens' fault, but there is some reporting that Trump did have a green light to walk out if he didn't like the deal. And you can almost assume that Bolton and even Pompeo may have been like, yeah, you probably should walk out. <laughs> don't We don't know. We don't know.
1: But Trump was very interesting the way he answered some questions about that. They said, was it your decision to walk out? And he said, I'm not going to get into to whose decision, you know, but we decided to walk out. So it seems that he, it could have been that, like, look, you know, his advisors told him walk away.
2: Bigger picture here: Trump is now surrounded by these people who advocate a more hawkish approach, and his favored. Personal way of talking about North Korea, you know, one-on-one, I'm in the room with Kim Jong-un, isn't working. Now, his presser comments about Kim Jong-un were surprisingly still positive. Like, he didn't return to little Rocket Man comments. He didn't seem angry immediately. So it's not like we're back on war footing, like, back to mid-2017 when everything was really scary again. But— We are in a a sort of pivot point, uh, one that reveals the hollowness, really, of Trump's attempt to do personal face-to-face diplomacy with, like, one of the world's worst dictators. Yeah, and I
1: just want to add, it's not just the U.S. Kim Jong-un, we think of him as this totalitarian dictator, and he is, but he does have a constituency at home, in particular the military establishment, which tend to also be more hawkish about things. So there's also the possibility that he could go home and lose what support he had for this and need to make a gesture. So, yeah, again, we didn't see Kim Jong-un come out, by the way. Not that he would have expected to do a press conference. It's not his style. But he just kind of pieced out or no pieced out, uh, as the case may be. So it's like we're back to the impasse.
2: So we're going to take a brief break now. And afterwards, we're going to come back to another scary nuclear standoff, this one involving India and Pakistan.
0: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody.
2: Now we're going to talk about the escalating dynamics of conflict in South Asia, where India and Pakistan are engaged in the worst round of hostilities we've seen in some time. And that's scary since they're both nuclear-armed powers. Now, we've been through the background of the situation on a previous episode, right, Jen? We talked about Kashmir.
1: Right. This is what the fight is over right now, this disputed territory of Kashmir. We're going to link to that show in the show notes so you guys can get more background on that. So we're going to skip over doing the, the real deep background on that part.
2: But, what, what you need to know here is that there's a territory and there's a divided line in the middle of it, and roughly, and India controls the territory to the south and Pakistan the territory to the north.
1: And both sides think they should control all of it. <laughs> and there have been recurrent outbreaks of violence. So Pakistan has the weaker army. Pakistan also, though, has these militant groups, terrorist groups, that are not officially part of the government— But they get some tacit government support or, at the very least, the government looks the other way because Pakistan can kind of use these groups to bolster its less strong military. So one of these
3: militant groups went into Indian-controlled territory and set off a pretty big terrorist attack earlier this month. And they killed around 40 people, including Indian troops.
1: There's a group named Jaishu Mohammed, Arabic for Army of Mohammed, It's the same organization that beheaded American journalist Daniel Pearl, and I will always bring that up. Go on.
3: India, naturally, was not happy with this, calling it uh, an act of aggression. And it's a really big issue for the Indian government because there are elections coming up soon. And And this
2: was a
1: huge terror attack, right?
3: Right, a a massive terror attack. I mean, imagine something that big happening close to an American presidential election. It would upend a lot of things.
2: And and more than that, right, because India's prime minister is a Hindu nationalist, right? His BJP party is— Their appeal is about a sort of divisive, pro-Indian, anti-Muslim kind of thing. So for a militant group that's tacitly backed by parts of the Pakistani government to commit a major terrorist attack in the run-up to an election, there's no way that this government is not going to respond with some kind of serious show of force.
3: And they did. And they have to say, they did.
1: So India launches an airstrike. They say they hit a Jayshu Mohammed, the terrorist training camp in Pakistan— And they claim that they killed a whole bunch of people. Like we said, elections was this big, like, look, we have Modi, the prime minister, said something about, like, you know, we will avenge every tear that has been shed for the victims of this attack. We have fought back.
2: But the Pakistanis say that the Indians did not, in fact, hit any... Uh, terrorist camp or or anything, really. They said that they just dropped their payload uh, on an empty area and nothing was damaged. Okay, so that's where things get really fuzzy, but I want to put a pin in that for a second and talk about why this escalatory pattern matters.
3: So the issue, of course, is that you have a tit-for-tat scaling up in terms of aggression, right? If you bomb me, I bomb you back, and then you kind of have to one-up that that next attack, and then you one-up that next attack, and you get to a point that you're into uh, an all-out war. And the scary thing here is both India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons, and so if you keep escalating, you could eventually get up to the nuclear level.
1: Right, and we have seen things escalate, right? It didn't just stop there. Pakistan sends jets into India, claims they'd made a strike. They shot down some Indian planes, captured an Indian pilot. People are scared. Not just the people who live there, obviously, but, you know, experts who follow stuff like this are watching, going, what happens if one side decides We're going to use a nuclear strike.
2: But now it's important to delve into the fuzzy part, right? Because this shows why this escalatory pattern is not necessarily putting us on the on-ramp to an all-out war. India saying that they did serious damage to Pakistan is clearly a show of force before the election, a way to claim that they've struck back against the terrorist attack. But the Pakistani counterclaim that India didn't hit anything seems designed to give them an off-ramp. To be able to say, look, we don't have to retaliate much more against the Indians than we already have because they didn't really do any damage to us. It shows an indication on the part of the Pakistani government that they really want to keep a lid on this conflict.
1: They're also even contesting where the strike even happened. So there are basically two towns in Pakistan that have the same name as the one that was hit. One is super duper close to that contested border And that's where Pakistan is saying, no, they they just hit that one. So they didn't really cross too far into our territory, basically. India is like, no, we hit the one that's like super duper inside Pakistan. So all of this on the Pakistani side seems, like you said, Zach, designed to kind of maybe de-escalate and be like, look, we don't have to hit back that hard. You guys didn't even really do anything. You just bombed this like random forest. It's also potentially a sign of de-escalation on the Indian side that they did just decide to hit this terrorist training camp. They didn't, for example, hit a Pakistani military base. They very explicitly hit this group and then said, hey Pakistan, we hold you responsible for this group because you are not dealing with this group that acts at will freely in your territory. You need to handle this. But they didn't say, we hold you responsible to the point that we're bombing you, Pakistan's military. So so
3: Pakistan's greater response here kind of intrigued me. On the one hand, you had the prime minister call a meeting of the nuclear chiefs. Yeah. Right? Which seems scary.
1: Yeah, it scares the shit out of everybody. Right. But then he puts out
3: a different message, which he's basically saying, or at least a seemingly different message, where he's saying, yeah, we can't afford to miscalculate because nuclear weapons are not a fun game, and so basically let's talk India. And so those seem contradictory to me, but maybe they are part of a plan of just being like, hey, we know how bad this could get maybe we should start chilling out here and having some sort of dialogue.
1: Pakistan also, remember I said they captured that Indian pilot, that seems super provocative. But they put out this video showing the Indian pilot sipping tea.
2: The officers of the Pakistani army have looked after me very well, they're thorough gentlemen.
1: They're gentlemen, they're treating me well, right? Maybe he was forced to say that under duress, we have no idea. But it's clearly a sign that Pakistan is trying to say, look, we're not, like, torturing your pilot. We're not doing anything bad. The latest news, they've agreed to return the pilot safely. So, again, these are all signs that they're trying to potentially de-escalate.
3: So can I sleep soundly now?
1: No, Uh, Ah. because the problem is miscalculation. That's what (laughs) the prime minister of Pakistan was saying, like, we can't afford to miscalculate. But that could still happen because you have a lot of people involved that are not just the leaders of the two countries. You have military officers, you have terrorist groups who could choose to do something else because they are not directly under the control of the Pakistani government, right? There are a lot of ways things could still go badly, even though both sides seem to not want it to.
2: It's important to zero in on that point about the Pakistani Government, right? Because it's it's split in some weird ways. First of all, there are factions of Pakistan's intelligence service, not all, but factions, the ISI, that actively support these terrorist agency. Yeah, that actively support these terrorist groups, and not just like as a practical matter, but some even are ideologically aligned with them, like right. believe in their sort of overall jihadist view. Which is the problem, which is why they haven't really been able to get rid of them, and and that means that those people could act independently and potentially escalate the situation whether or not the Pakistani prime minister wants them to. More broadly, there's this issue that's at play here, which we've talked before in nuclear standoffs. It's called the stability-instability paradox, which is that nuclear weapons make neither side want to escalate classic Cold War mutually assured destruction stuff that nobody wants to get into a nuclear war, which you think would make a conflict stable. That's the stability part. The instability part is that it encourages low-level incursions like these terrorist attacks, like India's jet bombing, because you think oh well they can't escalate so we can respond with these limited attacks and there's Not that much risk associated with it. We can do this,
1: and what are you gonna do? Right. right? What are you gonna do now? Yeah.
2: Except they might, right? They (laughs) might. For all of these reasons we've been talking about, there are different factions inside the governments that would encourage both sides to escalate. There are incentives created by elections that would make the Indian government more aggressive. There's pressure from nationalist television. Yeah,
1: that's the big part we should talk about too. Like we now are in a little bit different kind of media environment. So both sides have some very hyper-nationalistic media that's really, really egging both leaders on to be stronger, be tougher, fight back. And while these leaders know, sitting down quietly in their own offices, that yeah, we probably shouldn't get into a nuclear conflict, they also have to go out and face the public. They're like Twitter trolls that are coming out on both sides trying to kind of like egg each side on. So the hope is that the leaders ignore that, block that out, and act rationally. But that's not always the case in politics and reality.
3: So this is not a U.S. story, right? This is clearly a situation between India and Pakistan, but the U.S. does have a role to play. When crises like these break out, American leaders usually call their counterparts and say, hey guys, can you chill for a second? You know, what can we do to help? In fact, the uh, Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. basically said, we would love for the U.S. to have some involvement in this. You know, the Trump administration's been a little busy. As we talked about earlier, They you know, dealing with North Korea, there was that whole Michael Cohen stuff. The administration's head has been elsewhere, although they would say, you know, we've been making some calls. Even then, I see some problems, right? Because we, if you are dealing with a crisis like this, you would probably want your secretary of state and people under him, or even people at the Pentagon, making these kinds of calls. Well, here's a problem. We do have an ambassador in India but we don't have an ambassador in Pakistan. We don't have an assistant secretary of state for basically that region. We don't have a UN ambassador, and our Pentagon chief is an acting chief after Mattis retired. One thing that bothered me was the Pentagon put out a statement that basically said Pat Shanahan, the secretary of defense, was only calling American officials, not his counterparts, because he doesn't have those relationships. That's a very dangerous thing.
2: This isn't like a a side point. In 2001, there was a similar crisis between India and Pakistan, and the Bush administration's appointees to dealing with India and Pakistan played a vital role in talking them down. So we'll see where the situation takes us. Right now, there are there are signs that it's de-escalating, but there's just fundamentally such a concern about India and Pakistan that this kind of flare-up shows the risks inherent to two countries that really don't like each other having nuclear weapons pointed at each other all the time. I'd like to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for masterminding this episode. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to email us with your thoughts at worldly atvox.com. We always try to reply, and we're going to get into our Brexit series as soon as we can. We've gotten all of your questions. We're really excited about answering them. And as we get closer to the end of March deadline, things are really going to get exciting over there. So we'll get there. Also, finally, I would encourage you to rate and subscribe and review to Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, everyone.
0: Bye.